0: Good morning. How are you guys today? Someone said horrible. You're not supposed to say horrible. You're supposed to say, I'm doing great and lie. That's what you're supposed to do. So good to see you all this morning. Uh, we started a new series a few weeks ago called Life Upside Down. And, um, and uh, we started in Matthew 4, looking at Matthew 4, and we talked about how Christ experienced temptation and then he called his first disciples in the first part of Matthew, and then he begins teaching in the synagogues, and he's healing people, and this is drawing a large crowd in the area that he's in. And so Jesus moves away from the crowd, and he is on this hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And he preaches this sermon, and he, he moves to this hill. so he's, he's attracted to this large crowd, and now he has, um, now he moves to another hill to teach. And the question might be, why does he do that? Well, he does that because he doesn't want a crowd. He wants disciples. And so most of the crowd moves over to the, this hill where we might call it a mountain because we're in Texas where we don't live around mountains. So for us to be a mountain, for them to be a, a, a hill maybe. And, uh, and he begins teaching his most famous sermon, I think, the Sermon on the Mount. And remember in our first week we talked about how the Jewish people – are looking for this political liberator, this political Messiah, uh, to set them free from Rome. And Jesus comes as a different kind of Messiah. He comes as a liberator from sin. He's bringing a kingdom, but it's not the kingdom they're looking for. It's an upside-down kingdom. In Matthew 5, so go ahead and turn there if you have your Bibles with you. Matthew 5, Jesus describes what this kingdom life is going to look like. And that's really a fancy way of saying what it means to be one of his disciples. We've been talking about that the last few weeks. Now, last week, Dagan did a great job. Good job last week. Give him a hand for last. That was really good. He, he did a talk about, about being a people of influence and what it means to be salt and light in our culture. And as he said last week, stay lit, right? He said that last week. And... I actually made that the title of his message on the podcast, and he didn't like that. He's like, I, I can't get any respect if you, that's the, the title you're going to put on that. So, well, you said the statement in your sermon, so I went with it as the title. Um, but there's a lot of famous sayings in this sermon. Jesus does not say the statement stay lit, like not in the way that we would today. But he says, talks about Christians being the light of the world. And so there's a lot of famous sayings in the Sermon on the Mount and we tend to see them as disconnected. Like, whenever we look at the Bible, we tend to think that the, the verse numbers and chapter numbers themselves were inspired. That's not true. Did you guys know that, like, the chapter numbers and verse numbers came much later just as a way to find stuff? It's not like John was sitting there going, I'm working on chapter three of my book. Like, that's not how it went down. Like, he was just writing a book, and we gave it chapter numbers and verse numbers to find stuff. Okay? So... When Jesus is saying these statements, there's a lot of verses that we look at, and and we pull them out of their context, and we latch on to them, and they're really, very powerful sayings, but we've got to see the whole thing as connected, like one big, long sermon, because there's a flow to it. There's a a flow to what he's talking about, and you'll see how these connect week to week. So Dagon talked about how Jesus said he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, and how did he do that? Well, he lived perfectly, fulfilling the law in our place. This is how we did it. Then in verse 20, Jesus says, you've got to be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees to enter the kingdom. And the audience would have said, well, what in the world? Like, we can't be more righteous than the most righteous people among us. We can't, you know, achieve that kind of perfection and righteousness. And so this this statement in verse 20 was meant in two ways. Number one, that Jesus demands perfection. And you might say, well, who can be perfect? And Jesus would say, exactly, that's why you need me. That's why you need my perfection applied to you. But there's another way that verse 20 can be intended, and it's this. The scribes and Pharisees were all about external righteousness. And Jesus takes everything to the heart in this sermon. So, the scribes and Pharisees were all about keeping the law externally, but Jesus goes right to the heart. And you're going to see it in today's passage as well. And so, today we're going to look at two really, really big issues. We're going to look at anger and lust. So, what could possibly go wrong, right? So, two really huge topics that affect all of us, and Jesus starts getting practical, but he's trying to show how this whole thing goes to the heart. So if you want to be salt and light in our culture, what if followers of Jesus lived upside down in these two areas? How we handle anger and how we handle lust. What would our world look like? What would the church look like if Christians lived upside down to how the world lives in just these two areas, anger and lust? Now, to set this up, Jesus makes two really bold statements. He says in the passage, we're going to look at He says, you have, heard it, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery. Now, think back on the Ten Commandments. If we were to grade ourselves, which ones have you and I most likely broken? Let's look at the Ten Commandments. So, number one, idolatry. I've broken that one. Number two, taking God's name in vain, guilty. Keeping the Sabbath holy, that's kind of hard to apply today, I guess, but we'll say we're guilty of that one. Honoring our parents, guilty of that. Don't steal, broken that one. Don't lie, broken that one. Don't covet, broken that one. I've broken all of those, and I'm sure that many of you have as well. Now, there are two we have not mentioned, murder and adultery. If there are two that most of us have not committed, it's probably, probably those two probably. Now, people, people use those two to say they're a pretty good person, right? They'll say things like, well, at least I haven't murdered anyone. Do you know how many people have murdered someone? Here's a number for you. One out of 1,360 Americans have committed murder. That's .00735%. Are you sure? that you want to compare yourself to that person to prop up how good you are, right? I mean, (laughs) at least I'm not as bad as, you know, 0.00735% of the population, right? Try that line on a first date. Tell me about yourself. I haven't killed anyone, right? Well, that's good. Tell me more. Just turn it around. Like, this is the flip side of that statement. So I'm... I'm so good, I'm just like 99.99265% of the population. That's how good I am, right? So listen, Jesus looks at these two commandments, murder and adultery, the ones that most people have not broken externally, but then shows how he had broken them internally. And so what comes before murder? He's going to talk about hatred in the heart. What comes before adultery? Well, it's less in the heart. So I want to ask you this question. If we just listed off all the Ten Commandments and we added these last two that we're like, I've not committed those, woohoo, there's two I've not committed. And then you realize, well, I have done that thing in the heart that he's going to talk about today in the Sermon on the Mount, and so I guess I have committed murder in my heart and adultery in my heart. So are you starting to feel the spiritual poverty that we talked about in week one? When Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, and he's referring to not just like poor people, but that we feel poor in spirit before God because we have nothing to offer him. We have nothing to bring him. And you look at the commandments and you go, yeah, I'm a lawbreaker. I've broken all of them. And so we're going to look at these first two today. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Verse 21. I'm clicking the slides myself. I keep forgetting to do that. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So what is he talking about? Well, these people thought they're righteous because they hadn't killed anyone, but Jesus shows them where murder begins, and murder begins with anger and, and hatred in the heart. Now, is all anger sin? Who would say that all anger is sin? Raise your hand. All anger? No? No one's going to say that? So Jesus got angry at sin and injustice, right? But he's talking about a sinful anger that leads to a hatred and a contempt for other people. This kind of anger leads us to do and say all kinds of horrible things about, with, with people. What do they call it when someone speaks badly of someone? they call it character assassination right someone said that i heard someone say it so it's another way of saying another way of saying you fool is to say empty headed this is another word for it empty head blockhead bonehead like that's that's another way of saying the statement here you fool now when students enter high school i always meet with the the parents of freshmen every at the, end of every, at the end of every spring, I meet with the parents of freshmen. And I'm not trying to scare them, but I'm trying to scare them, the parents, a little bit. Just to let them know, like, hey, here's what to expect coming up into high school. And here's the things to expect with your students, some, some changes you should be expecting with their friendship groups and so on. And I always tell parents the number one thing that will make their student not want to come down here is friendship drama. Number one thing, always. And I wonder how many of you in here, have, have been angry with someone here, and it's led to you saying and doing things against this person. Instead, instead of doing the hard work of peacemaking, we talked about peacemaking two weeks ago, instead of going through, yeah, some conflict and making peace, we might just kind of fake peace or just go away, run away, and avoid Instead of working through the hard work of confession and repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation, we have worked hard to assassinate someone's character. And so you may not have killed the person, but you've killed the friendship. And so sometimes I'll encounter a student occasionally who is always in conflict or drama with their friends. And friendships are always ending and beginning and ending and beginning, and new ones are beginning, but they never last that long because there's just always drama, right? And, and I, I say this. I love being a high school pastor because, um, I'll just speak really bluntly to you, because I get you for four years, right? And, and so I'm in this weird position where I've been doing this long enough where I'll see some things and go, man, I really want to say this to this person or to this student or even talk to a leader and have this leader that knows them better than me kind of speak some truth into their life. But I'm seeing kind of where this person is heading with their life and it's really concerning to me. And we get to speak truth in those situations. And listen, like we're not trying to be jerks about it or be gleeful about it. Like we're just trying to point you to Christ and point you to his truth. But sometimes... As a high school pastor, um, I get a little bit nervous when it comes to sharing those kind of things. And then I realize, wait a second, like, we get four years. Like, if if we don't speak this into their life, they're going to graduate and keep doing the same kinds of patterns in college and in young adulthood and beyond. And so, listen, like, if if I ever offend you or if someone else here ever offends you, understand, like, We're going to mess up. We're not going to say it just right. But understand that our hope and intent is to help you grow. And listen, we are sinful as well. We make all kinds of mistakes. I'll be the first to admit it. We want you to know we get four years with you. That's it. Before you graduate and go on somewhere else. And so we're we're trying to call you into this hard work of peacemaking and reconciliation and forgiveness and, and sometimes, if you're a person that's always coming to us and sharing things with us, and you're always saying things like, you know, I don't know what the deal is, like, I just can't keep friendships, and it's just always, like, their fault. Like, we might look at you and say, you might want to look in the mirror, you might you might want to look and see, like, why is this pattern following you everywhere? And so you can't, you can't just assassinate someone's character and assassinate the friendship and expect to be able to keep friendships. It's just not a healthy pattern to live in. And so Jesus, what does Jesus say to this person? The image here is someone going to the temple to offer a sacrifice, and the sacrifice they're offering is pointing to the forgiveness that God provides us. And so while they're going to the temple back in that day to offer a sacrifice, a sacrifice that points to the forgiveness that God has so freely given us, that person is harboring bitterness and unforgiveness as they exercise the symbol of God's forgiveness, they are unwilling to give forgiveness to their brother or sister in Christ. That's a picture being painted for us in this passage. Now, what's the modern-day equivalent of that? Well, it might be us, you know, standing in church, raising our hands up, and singing songs with our mouths about God's grace. Meanwhile, we're not going to be someone that extends God's grace. To somebody else. Or maybe we're taking communion, and as we're sitting there in reflection, we're staring into the little cup that signifies the blood of Christ that's shed for us on the cross for our sin. And meanwhile, we, we shed all kinds of blood in our friendships. So this is a modern example of what's being talked about in this text. You see, unresolved anger interferes with our worship of God so does God does God feel distant might it be because we refuse to extend the grace that we have received freely so does God seem distant to you I want you to do your first uh, three questions at your tables for a few moments Okay, let's look at verse 27. If you guys need more time at the end with some of those other questions, you can take it at the end. But let's look at verse 27. Now, uh, at first, it looks like Jesus is just touching on some random topics. Like Jesus is preaching a sermon, he's like, let me try to think of some practical, relevant things. Let's see, uh, anger, we'll hit anger, and then after that, we'll just, we'll hit lust. That's a big one, too. It's not what he's doing. Like, there's a progression here. I want you to see how they're connected. Because in a marriage, when a couple starts harboring anger and bitterness, that can lead to coveting someone else's wife or husband, looking at someone else, lusting after someone else, which leads to adultery. Next week, Megan's going to talk about one of the topics she'll discuss next week is Divorce. So you see the progression here of there's anger, then there's lust, and then there's adultery, and then there's divorce, and you see this pattern play out in relationships. And so these are all connected to one another. And so look at verse 27. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin... Tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. All right, before you freak out, what in the world is he? We're going to get to that in a moment. Just just follow us on this deal, all right? So everyone, if you were to do an interview on the street in, in probably any city, even the most liberal of cities. If you walked up and said, hey, do you think if you're married to someone, do you think cheating on them is wrong? Go to the most liberal city in our nation or the world and you'll probably get a resounding yes. So this is where the church, the Bible, and culture tend to agree that adultery is wrong. Most would say that, I think, right? Now, there's another way in which the church and culture tend to agree, and it's not good. And it's this. Almost no one thinks that lust is wrong. Christians have stopped being salt and light in areas of lust and sexuality. So what, let's define lust, because everyone probably has their own definition of what they think it is. What's the, let's define this. So thinking that someone is attractive, is not the same thing as lust. So, for example, I'm going to embarrass my wife here. She's on the front row up here. So when I first walked in, and I went into this little deli where she was working, didn't know who she was, and she took my order, okay? And um, I just instantly looked at her and thought, she's attractive. I looked at her in her, the total, t- totality, I can't even talk, I'm so nervous, Of who she is, and I thought she is an attractive person. I knew nothing else about her. And you know what, guys? Like, she wasn't, like, all dressed up like today. She had all, I think she had her hair up. She probably had, like, mayonnaise on her cheek. I mean, it was a sandwich restaurant, you know. But I still thought, like, she's attractive. And then I went over and sat down, and the guy I was having lunch with, I didn't hear a word he said. And uh, so then she and I start talking later, and you guys, I've, I've told you all the story already, but you want to hear the rest of the story. But I, I wasn't lusting; I was just thinking like she's attractive, right? And and so thinking someone's attractive not the same thing as lust. You can look at someone in their wholeness and recognize beauty, or for the girls, recognizing a guy being handsome, and it's not sinful. God designed you that way. Lust is when your eyes start. To get really specific, lustful intent is devouring someone with your eyes and you're playing out sinful actions in your mind. That's what lust is. So, lust is when you look at someone as just a physical object and you are separating body from soul. And you're not seeing them in their totality, you're seeing them as a piece of flesh as just something just to gratify for your eyes. That's what lust is. And so I'll even say this, sexual desire is not the same thing as lust. God created sex. God created sexual desire. So sexual, like if if you're talking to a couple and they're engaged and they're being honest and saying, yeah, we're looking forward to that in our marriage, that's not sinful, that's not the same thing as lust. God created those desires and God created sex. So it's not the same thing as lust. But lust is when you feed God-given sexual desire. You feed that desire in a sinful way. That's what lust is. And this, listening ladies, I know this passage seems like it's directed at the guys. But this applies to you as well. And you know it does. And we're going to show you how it does here in a moment. This does not apply only to men. This applies to ladies as well. Because women can certainly lust after men in ways that men lust after women. And there are some other ways that women lust as well. When Many years ago now, I was having a conversation. I was working in a different church, and I had a conversation with my friend and I were talking to one of our female leaders in this church. And we're just talking about, like, the sin struggles of guys and girls. And, of course, the first one that for guys, everyone always thinks of lust as being, like, the number one struggle for, for guys. And in our immaturity, we were just joking with her, and we were like, so what's, like, girls, like, top sin issue? Like, gossip? And she's like, she kind of laughed, and, and she said, well, you guys need to understand something. Like, don't downplay the sin of lust with a woman. And we were like, okay, well, get, we're not trying to be inappropriate here, but like, can you get, like, what's, what is that like for you then? Like, what is it? Because I'm doing the math and I'm like, okay, women, beautiful. Guys, not so much. Like, how does that work exactly? And, and she says, well, I would say it to you like this. She said, so for a guy, like, guys want to look but girls we like being looked at. And I was like, "Huh, that's an interesting way of defining it." And so this was spoken to us by a fellow leader, someone whose work was working with us at the time, working with students. And she said, "For men lust might be desiring woman in a sinful way, but for a woman lust is wanting to be desired." in that way. And so, girls, I'm not trying to get, like, embarrass any of you in any way right now, but if you just look at the number, if you look at social media, look at the number of selfies that you take compared to the guys. I'll just let that math speak for itself, all right? Now, I'm not saying at all that you're being inappropriate or anything like that. I'm just saying there is something true to this. I think, guys... Look in the mirror and are like, I'm not taking a selfie of that. That's not, that's not selfie worthy. I mean, I understand. Like, y'all got a lot more going for you than we do, all right? But when you do the math, like, just there is something, I think, in a female that says, I want some affirmation. I want something. I want someone from the outside to affirm me and tell me that I'm wanted and tell me that I'm desirable and this can easily go into lust and you lusting for that kind of attention. So, a woman might want to be the object of a man's lust, and that is a lust. This is what I think is fueling the epidemic of picture sharing among people that, you, that are your age. It's an epidemic. And I know that you know it's an epidemic in your generation. Sending someone a pick request is fueled by lust, and the pick that's being sent is another kind of lust. And it's to a lust to be the object of someone else's desire. And whenever you do that, that is a power move. That is a if I want to have control and power in this situation, this is a way for me to get it. And so the pick goes. And of course, there's so much destructive that's about, that is about this. You are part of the first generation where you can be sexual with someone and not even be in the same room with them. This is, this is like a whole new reality. I know that you know this already, but I'm, I'm saying things that are obvious to you. And we haven't even talked about just pornography and Netflix and Amazon Prime and movie channels yet. And listen, I don't want this to sound self-righteous because I say this knowing how weak I am. But there are times where I get just so conflicted internally with how i see the church and christians ceasing to be salt and light in areas of of lust and sexuality especially in what we expose ourselves to what we watch and listen i'm not up here going to make a bunch of list of rules of what i'm not doing that but i'm just trying to get us to think about like there are things that i will see on social media that that people in our church will will say they're watching and they'll share it and say, I can't wait for the season finale of fill in the blank. And I'll be like, I never heard of that show. I'm going to go see what it's about. And I go to the website. And I'm like, what's in this show? And I'm lusting just reading the content just on, as words, right? And I'm just going, wow. Like that's, we're just going to be public about how okay we are with watching that on a screen. And I know that all that I'm saying, in your mind, you're already like, yeah, this just sounds so legalistic and so just rule-based. And You're already thinking that in your mind. You're already thinking about that as I say these, these statements. And I'm not talking about those that are struggling, genuinely struggling with these kinds of things. Like someone genuinely struggling, they're, they're, conf- they're still calling it sin, they're confessing it, they're repenting, they're... They're finding ways to cut sin out of their life. But I'm talking about those that are embracing it and not calling it sin. They're living in it. They're walking in it. I'm referring to that kind of person that calls himself a believer. I mean, listen, the words you see. Did I not hit the slide? Here we go. The words you see on the screen, those were written when pornography didn't even exist, at least as we know it today. What's being described here is everyday run-of-the-mill social interaction where you fall into lust. What we have today is much more intentional, willful, and so-called Christians are falling for the lie that it's just entertainment. It's just art. It's a really good show. It's, you know, if you can look past all of that stuff, it's got a really good plot line. I've heard that so many times. And so what I'm going to tell you right now, this is going to sound really crass, but just follow with me on this. What if somebody here at TBC walked up to you, nicely dressed couple, walked up to you on a Sunday morning, and they handed you a card, and on the card, there was a website, and they said, hey, uh, the guy said, hey, this is my girlfriend, and uh, we started making some videos, and they're online. And so, here's my card, go to the website, pay with a credit card, and you can watch our videos. Like, you would be horrified, you would be disgusted that someone is asking you to go watch them online and pay money for it. And the reason why is because you know these people, you're like, that's, that's, why would I even do that, Right? And so my question to us is why is it any different if we turn on, like, HBO or Showtime? It's the exact same transaction. Just because you don't know them, it's somehow, like, okay for you to watch people on a screen in that way? The, the church, and, and Christians especially, have ceased to be salt and light in areas of sexuality, and again not talking about those struggling. I'm talking about those who don't call it sin any longer. And so what does repentance look like for someone in this situation? Look at verses 29 and 30. What is Jesus saying? Is this literal? I'm pretty sure that if we took this literally, we would all have no arms and no legs and no eyes. Like, each of us in the room would have... No way to get through life at all, right? So Jesus can't mean this in a literal way. Some Christians back in the day did take this literally. There's a guy named Origen. I'll spare you the details. He performed surgery on himself. Details I will not give. But he took this literally. And Jesus is not saying to do this literally. He's using what's called hyperbole, hyperbole overstatement, to make a point. So what is the point He's making. He's making the point that Christians need to deal drastically with sin. You take every measure you can to deal with the source of temptation in your life. That's what repentance looks like. So what's it look like for someone struggling with porn? Whenever a student comes to me and confesses these kinds of things to me, I always ask the question, so what is your plan? And they're kind of looking at you funny like, what do you mean? I'm like, well... You came and told me, but what's your plan going forward? And they might say, well, well, I confess it to you. Just pray for me. I'm just going to pray that God gives me strength to fight the temptation. And every time I tell them, that's not going to work. Like, I know me, and I know you, and I know all of y'all, and that's not going to work. And I'll say something like, what if you went to your parents and you said, hey, like, I can't handle this anymore. Can, can you take my phone, like, for a long time? I can't handle this computer in my room anymore. Can you take this and take this from me? And, and what if you became the kind of person that understood what Christ is saying here? And when I, when I say things like, what if you got rid of your phone? I hear things like, I can't do that. I need my phone. And I say, well, you mean kind of like you need your hand? Kind of like you need your eyeball? See, Jesus says, gouge out your eye and cut off your hand, and we can't even cut off the account? And so, whenever I'm talking to students about this topic, I want to ask this question. Will you be the kind of person going forward who's honest and open about where you struggle and someone who is willing to cut things out of your life when they are causing you to fall into sin? And if you come to us as leaders and say, why you can't do that, we're going to tell you over and over again, I'm sorry, but I don't see, I'm not saying that you, you make this, you cancel something for the rest of your life. I'm saying, will you become the kind of person who takes drastic measure to deal with sin? That's the question you have to answer. And I don't mean like, well, yeah, I do that whenever... My mom or dad, take it away. No, will you be the kind of person that goes to someone and says, I can't handle this anymore. Here. Mom, dad, I can't handle this anymore. Here, it's yours. And maybe if it's reintroduced into your life, and you begin to struggle again, you do that again. And you keep doing that over and over and over again. This is what repentance looks like. It has real-life application. And it's not just theory. Like, yeah, I'll pray about it. I'll just pray. Can you pray for me? And I'll pray for me. And meanwhile, you've got the source of temptation just in front of you all the time. And you know you're going to stumble and you're going to fall. And so listen, the point of Christ's words are not for you to take an ice pick to your eyes and a hacksaw to your hands and feet. What is he saying? He's saying you could even do all of that. I could gouge out my eyes. I could cut off my arms. I can cut off my legs. And guess what I still have? I still have a heart that is sinful and wicked and separated from God because of my sin. And so what Jesus is indirectly doing here is showing you could do all those surgeries, but guess what? Your heart still needs me. Your heart still needs me to transform you. And so that's the ultimate purpose of what he's talking about here, is that we have a heart problem. And only Jesus can fix it. So whenever I talk to students about this topic of lust, I always talk about it in the form of two battles. This is a two-front war that you have to fight. There is the internal battle. It's the heart stuff. It's idolatry. There's some deeply rooted heart issues going on when you and I walk off into sin in these areas of our lives. That's the internal battle. The external battle is things like cutting off the source of temptation, finding things that, situations and things that you get caught up in that cause you to stumble. That's the external battle. And you've got to fight both battles. You can't just go internal and just say, pray for me. You can't just do external and be like, well, I got rid of my computer, got rid of my phone. Like, there's hard stuff going on too. And that's got to be dealt with. And so you've got to fight the battle on two fronts, the internal battle and the external battle. And I'll tell you, I know this topic can create a lot of conversation among, I hope it does, among you as a student, our students and leaders and listen, I'm not going to say if you are struggling. I'm going to say for those that are struggling, please come and talk to us. We want to help you fight the battle internally and externally and help you understand what, the ways in which Jesus wants to transform you. That's my prayer for you this morning. Go ahead and finish with your last few questions at your tables.